Hi, this is Oren. If you find these teachings useful and you'd like to learn more about my work, you can visit me online at orenjsofer.com or on social media at orenjsofer. Thanks so much. I don't know about you, but I feel pretty uplifted. <laughs> yeah, how beautiful, just hearing those intentions and each of our names. And also noticing how that was to, to speak and to listen in, in such a uh, intentional way. Yeah, it's different, right? It creates a very kind of different space. And so I think it's very important just to just to touch this, just to know what it feels like to use our words in a very careful and deliberate way, to know what we're saying, to know why we're saying it, how we're saying it, yeah, and then to be received, to feel as if we are speaking into a space that's hearing us, that's receiving us, and to feel that, yeah. And noticing what it took for that to arise, what were the conditions, yeah? We reflected, we, we had some time to think about what was true for us. Mm -hmm. And then we had a little bit of a structure, actually. We knew what we were going to say. And we took our time, we didn't rush. And we had a shared intention, a shared understanding of what was happening. And then noticing what it feels like to, to, to really feel and enjoy the goodness of what's bringing us together. Yeah. All of these different facets of the human heart, of, of, of awakening, really. Peace, clarity, kindness, forgiveness, longing, understanding, empathy, listening. <clears throat> all of these different manifestations of uh, a heart and mind that are awake, that are present, and that are alive and responsive. So for me, I'm, I'm really here to help us explore together waking up, waking up in our lives and making our hearts, our minds more beautiful, more bright. And in doing so, releasing them, releasing them from the places that they get caught, from their confusion, from the snags and dark places. And specifically, we're here to explore what it means to, to live these, these teachings that have come down to us from the Buddha and to bring them fully into our lives through one particular aspect, through one very, very fundamental part of being human, which is, which is speaking, our communication. And this is an explicit part of the teachings, as I think we all know. And it's a really rich field for cultivation. It's a very, very fertile soil for growing the heart and for waking up. And in this way, it can, it can be an integral part of our, of our spiritual path, not just an extra thing that we add on, but actually a part of our awakening process. So let's just contemplate speech for a few minutes. Just what is it? What is this thing that's happening right now? That's fairly magical and a little bit mysterious that we've developed this incredibly nuanced capacity to communicate, to transmit meaning, yeah? to express and receive something. So what is it? What is, what is this that's happening? Well, there's something happening in my heart and mind right now. So for example, 
I can think of a rainbow. And I say it in words, and then you hear it, and then what happens? You, you think of a rainbow. So something that starts in my mind is now in your mind. Ever think about that? Hmm? If I say red, yellow, you think... What? Probably a color, right? Yeah? If I say one, two, you think... Three, right? Am I putting thoughts in your head? Right? No, we're, this, this, is, this is communication. You see, already our minds aren't so separate. If they were, we couldn't actually communicate. So already just looking at it, you can see that there's, there's a rich field for understanding the Buddha's teachings about the self, which seems so solid and separate. But speech and communication, is, it's a function whereby what's internal becomes external, and then becomes internal again. So it's this external meeting of our internal worlds. It's where our hearts and minds can actually meet and touch each other through speech, through language, through communication. It's fascinating. It's magical. Yeah. And we can think about um, just the immense beauty that's possible with language, with poetry, with song, theater, literature, you know, all of the wondrous works that the human, human species has created through language, all the various expressions, you know, from Shakespeare and Victorian poetry to hip hop and everything in between. And the power that words carry how we can be moved and touched by things that have been said. How we can feel so loved or seen, so connected, so heard through another's words. You know, wow, that sounds really hard. You know, someone says that in response to something and we feel it, yeah, it's powerful. And we also know that there's great harm that can be done with words. You know, how, how wounded we can feel by something someone has said, how words can sting, how they stay in the mind. Yeah. Uh, each of us has heard things like that, and I'm sure each of us has said things you know, that we regret. Something came out, and you can't take it back. Once those words are out, they're out. It's been done. Hmm? Can't take it back in. This is karma. And our actions have effects. How, how words can be used to, for, uh, for negative purposes, to manipulate or coerce, to pressure, or to advance political agendas, right? The, the great tragedies that we witness even to this day of genocide. How, is that, how does that happen? It happens with words, with perceptions. That's how it's fed. It starts in the heart with fear and separation, right, and anger. But then, but then what actually makes it happen is painting pictures with words and believing, believing them and then people become a certain way, and then there's a certain rhetoric that needs to get carried out that leads to actions. Or oppression, and racism, and sexism, and all the other ways people become better or worse than others that are supported by our, our, our words, our ways of thinking, our speech. So it's tremendously powerful for good or for harm this faculty, this mysterious ability to communicate, to affect one another's minds and hearts with words. 
I think it's one of the few things that's this powerful that's also so present every day. Every day in our lives. Yeah, when we're with other people, when we're alone, and we talk to ourselves. So when we take it up as a practice, we're practicing with something very powerful all the time. Or at least most of the time. And think about how much we communicate. I don't think any of us here are silent monastics. Maybe there are um, a couple of people who have a very sheltered life, who live more, more of, a, of a hermit's life, who still live in the world. We're all lay people. Yeah? But think about how much you talk every day, how much you speak on the phone, how much you email, how much you text, how much you think, how much you talk to yourself. I often, I often think that um, at some of our meditation retreats where you sit for a week or 10 days or a month or longer, and then we have this 20 or 30 minute period on, on being mindful of speaking at the end, it's kind of a joke, you know, 20 or 30 minutes to deal with this whole realm of life, right? So we need dedicated periods of time to actually explore and practice with communication, with our speech, which is why a retreat like this is so useful and so unique, and why I think, uh, why I'm so grateful to BCBS for creating the space for retreats like this to happen, for Gregory Kramer's Insight Dialogue retreats, for this retreat to happen, to really take speech as a practice in and of itself, not as an extra thing that we give lip service to, pun intended, but actually something to put front and center and practice with. And, and we really see the relevance, I think, in, in our lives, in our relationships, our friendships, our partnerships, our work, and in the world at large. Yeah. How, how much different things would be if uh, there were more care and honesty and truthfulness in, in communication. So I was, um, was out in California recently where I live and um, I went to a wedding with my partner and um, it was very loud, lots of people, lots of talking. And so I took a little walk um, during, the, during a break in the meal or something. I was up in this small town in the uh, foothills of the Sierras, and uh, I was walking down the street, and someone someone comes up and he says, "Orin." So I, d I didn't actually recognize him, but it's someone who had sat a retreat with me and taken a couple of workshops, and um, so we started chatting. And you know, he, and he asked me. He said, "You know, I have a question. I, I wanted to ask you. Uh, I've been actually working with speech in my life a lot." And uh, I wanted to ask, you know, what is, what's the essence? What's the essence of wise, of right speech? A really good question, yeah. So I said, I said, uh, gosh, you know, I, I, I've never actually asked myself that question. And, um, you know, what I said to him was uh, basically what the texts say, which is, I said, well, you know, essence of wise speech is abstaining from false speech, harsh speech, divisive speech, and idle speech, and it's cultivating truthful speech, useful speech, kind speech, bene beneficial speech. It's coming from goodwill, and that's appropriate, and it's timing. That's kind of, that's, that's what the teachings are. And then later I was thinking about it, and I said, no, you know, that's, that's not true. I mean, that's all true, but that's not the essence of it. The essence of, of, of right speech is speech that leads to awakening. That's the essence of it. Because the Eightfold Path is about what? It's about ending suffering. It's about waking up. And speech is right there with mindfulness and concentration and wisdom, is speech. It's the only precept that gets its own place in the eight, Eightfold Path. The others are lumped together in right action. The Buddha thought speech was important enough to single it out and say, no, this is actually front and center. Pay attention to how you speak. And when we practice with it, it's a vehicle for awakening. That's the essence of it. That's what it's about.
how do we do that? So when we practice with speech for awakening, it means that we're using speech to increase wholesome mind states and to decrease unwholesome mind states. To increase our concentration, ability to stay with things, our mindfulness, ability to know what's happening, a sense of care and thoughtfulness, of patience. So, you know, how often does our speech go in that direction? How often do we use our speech in those ways to, to grow wholesome mind states? Yeah. To decrease distraction or greed or fear or envy or confusion or agitation. Do we use, do we use our words and our thinking in, the, in those ways? And how often does it lead to ending suffering? How often do we use it in the service of, of freeing ourselves from the ways we get caught from, from stress? The whole, the whole framework of the Buddha's teachings is suffering and the end of suffering. I'm, I'm imagining all of us are familiar with the teachings of the Four Noble Truths which in, the, in their essence are pointing at two things. One, they're pointing at, at causality, as actually saying like, you know, the, the pain and suffering and stress that we experience, it's, it's actually conditioned. There's certain, there's certain causes that are creating it. And when you understand those causes, you can change them and then suffer less. That's the first thing it's pointing to. The second thing it's pointing to is because of that, it's not absolute. Our distress, our, our pain is not permanent. It's conditioned. It's conditional. It depends on certain things to exist, just like that rainbow. It comes together when certain conditions are there, and then it dissolves. It's impermanent. We, see, we can see that. We can see it arising and passing with different conditions. And seeing that, we become less caught by it when we understand its nature, its impermanence, and when we understand its causes. And so we're using speech in, that, in service of that. And that's what we'll be looking at this, this weekend, really exploring together. So the, the, the title of, of this workshop that, uh, that we chose is The Path of Wise Speech, Living the Teachings. I've talked a little bit about living the teachings, about how this is so important in our, in our lives. And I want to kind of play with the, the title, The Path of Wise Speech, and just say a little bit about what I mean by that. So a path, what is a path? A path goes somewhere. Yeah. It's, uh, it means there's a practice. It means there's a place to actually walk, something that we can actually use. And where it's going is awakening, is... Uh, making the heart more beautiful and bright and freeing it. And that there's actually a practice. There's actually specific things we can do with our speech and our mind to, to work with it in that direction. And this is one of the primary intentions I'm coming with this weekend is to give you tools to make it a path so that you leave here with some understanding and then some practices to actually work with to make this a path, to make it a practice. The path of wise speech. So wise, where's that coming from? So this is a, this is a translation of the Pali uh, right speech. It's often translated. And the word in Pali is samma. Samma, which means right or complete. A sense of complete. It's related to the word summit or summary, the whole thing. So speech that is complete, that is whole, um, that is right. And what does that mean, right speech? Um, we tend to shy away, I think, in our, in our culture here in the West from moralistic words like right and wrong. So sometimes you find a translations tending more towards like wise speech, or some people even stretch it further to say like mature, speech, mature action, things like this. But um, I think it's important to actually affirm the, the ethical dimension of the path and, 
you know, that there's, there's something about what we're doing that, that's, um, it's upright. It has that sense of, of, of dignity to it. There's a wholesome quality, and this is this is one as, one sense in which it's it's right speech or or wise speech. It it means that it doesn't bring harm. It doesn't bring harm to ourselves or to other people. And this is one of the criteria for right speech or wise speech. Is uh, does it lead to my affliction? Does it lead to others' affliction? But also, the, the, that word right, it also has another, there's a very, another meaning that's very important, which is about, there is such a thing as wrong speech and right speech. And the pair of words in Pali translate that way as right and wrong. So it doesn't, it doesn't mean right and wrong in the sense of the sort of um, judgmental God of the Judeo-Christian tradition you know, with a moral absolute. That's not what it's saying. It is talking about um, where it goes in terms of leading to pain and harm. But it also means right in the sense of a direction. There's a Ryokan poem that ends, if you point your cart north when you want to go south, how will you ever arrive? Yeah. If you, if you want to go south, you have to be pointed south. You have to be facing the right direction. And that's what right means. It means if your interest is in liberation, this is the right direction to go. If you're using these other kinds of speeches, you're going in the wrong direction. You're going away from liberation. So right view, right intention, right speech, these are the right direction for awakening if this is what our intention is. Or if your intention is more peace in your heart, more connection in your life, more empathy, more clarity, you know, however that word awakening appears to you, whatever that means to you, that this is the direction to go in if that's, if that's what your interest is. So wise speech is a speech is speech that's that's based on that understanding of knowing which way to go, and that points us and keeps going in the right direction. So it springs from a mind that's connected to wisdom that understands what we're making our life about and how to and how to move in that direction. So a path goes somewhere. There's something to do wise or right, it's connected to wisdom, it knows which way it's going, and it's um, uh, ethically wholesome. And speech. So literally the word in Pali for speech is ubacha, which interestingly is connected to, it's with a V, it's pronounced vacha, uh, connected to the Latin uh, vox for voice. Actually, there's a connection there. They share a cognate linguistically. And so it literally means word or speech or saying. Uh, expression, what we, what, we, what we say. But it also means what we think. It's the, it's the verbal faculty. The verbal faculty, which, is f which forms in the mind as words, as speech, and then comes out Sorry, it forms in the mind as thoughts and then comes out as words. This is what's called vajisankara, one of the three doors of action for karma. Yeah, that we 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 create we have we create karma. We we set certain things in motion through our actions in three ways: with our bodies, with what we do, with our hearts, the chitta the kind of heart energies we cultivate, and with, our, with the verbal faculty, with our thoughts and words, with what we say and think. These are the three channels that um, our energy run down, our bodies, our hearts, and then the verbal faculty of speech and thought. So that's what we're looking at, is this verbal faculty, thought and speech. 
And when we train with this, we train with the whole practice of inner and outer communication. This understanding this relationship between thoughts and speech is very important, and we'll continue looking at this. And I want to say it's, it's not easy. This isn't an easy practice. It's doable, it's very doable, but it, it, takes, some, uh, it takes some effort. Why is that? Why is it hard? Well, for one reason, it's hard just because we haven't done it. Yeah? When we don't know how to do something, initially sometimes it's hard just because we haven't practiced it. So being mindful when we're speaking can be hard just because it's new often. Maybe, maybe some of us have practiced with it more. It's also fairly complex. Speech is, is a fairly complex faculty. We were looking at this earlier and just talking about what's actually happening with our minds when we speak. But there's, there's many dimensions to speech. So you look at what's happening right now. Speaking, what's going on? Well, first, first there's a somatic element. What does that mean? It means a body element. There's the experience of speech as music, as sound. It's coming out of this body, so there's vibration, there's rhythm, there's tone, there's volume, yeah? So there's this whole physical manifestation of speech. And there's an energy to it, there's body language. So there's a whole bodily component, a somatic component to speech and communication. There's an emotional element to it. You know, speech is often about connecting. There's often some emotional tone to it. Even if we're just chatting about nothing in particular, what's happening is we're connecting. You know, we're sharing, we're sharing energy, we're sharing space together. We're kind of, we're kind of, we're playing tag a little bit with words. We used to run around and do it when we were kids, and now we do, we sit there and we chat, we chit chat back and forth, back and forth. I touch you, you touch me, I touch you. So there's this emotional exchange happening. There's a cognitive element. That's what we usually focus on, the meaning, the cognitive element, the mental level of it. So we see all of these operating at, at various levels with any message. So there's the content, there's what we're saying. There's the medium. There's how we're saying it, how it comes out. There's the meaning. There's the intention, why we're saying it, where it's coming from. And, and, and in the, within the meaning, there are all the different layers of meaning. There's the literal meaning, there can be figurative meaning, there can be poetic meanings, there's irony, there's sarcasm. And then there's the more intangible parts of meaning, the, 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 the tone of voice, right? The energy with which something comes, and the emotion that's transmitted in it. It's very rich. The human ear is tuned to a very, very specific frequency for a human voice. You ever have the experience of being somewhere, maybe in nature, but sometimes in the suburbs it happens, and you hear something crying, and everything perks up, right? And you're not sure if it's a baby or it could be like a cat or a cat bird or something, or sometimes a coyote, yeah? We're tuned to that frequency of the human voice. It's biological, it's evolutionary, because we're social creatures. So we, we tune into the voice very, very specifically. So all of that's happening in speech. And we are also, we're, we're very complex creatures. You take one person, take yourself, take the person next to you, and think about, okay, you got your personal history, you got your cultural history, maybe your religious history, all your thoughts, all your ideas, your intentions, your plans, your emotions, your memories. There's this whole package, right? Just rolling along. And you take one of those and you put it with another one, right? It gets really complex. And no wonder it can be so hard. There's a famous quote of George Bernard Shaw. He said, uh, the single biggest 
problem with communication is the illusion that it has taken place. There's actually something quite profound about that. So for all these reasons, you know, there's a lot there. So it can be difficult to practice with it. It can also be that, that much more rich and rewarding because there's so much packed into it. But it's also very, um, a very deep practice for another fundamental and important reason, which is that it's, it's, it's where we identify. Our speech, our voice, so much of who we are. Of all the things that change about a human being over our life, once we reach a certain age, the voice often changes the least. Yeah? You can hear someone's voice and immediately you know, you know who it is. It's a signature, it's a certain energetic signature that the self forms around. So there's a lot of, there's a lot of energy there. There's a lot of clinging there. There's a lot, there's a lot bound up in it. And a lot can be released because of that. And because it's so much of who we are, so much of who we are actually, rather, so much of who we are kind of gets formed through our voice. It mediates our experience with other people. This life is a shared experience. Life is a relationship. We're always in relationship with something, even when we're alone. We're in relationship with the space around us, the trees, the building. And language mediates that relationship, particularly with other human beings. It's how we contact one another. Yeah. That's why that baby's cry is so powerful. It's that basic human reaching for contact. See me, hold me, know me, I'm here. That's one of our primary ways of, of, of connecting. So it's very, very powerful because of that. And this is one of the reasons why it's so essential to include in our practice of liberation, in our practice of waking up. It's because it's so tied in with our experience of being here and our sense of who we are. And as we practice with it, it can really, it can really um, untangle a lot for us. A lot of our history, our patterns, our memories can become revealed and loosen and open, even at the deepest levels. So the intention of this is to inspire and motivate, but maybe also uh, after saying all of this, a weekend retreat is also sounding like a bit of a joke. It's really a lifelong practice. It really is. Yeah. This. 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 Um, and that's, that's a beautiful thing. That's not a daunting thing, you know. It's that sense of every day, every day we can do something that's, uh, that's meaningful. That's meaningful to ourselves and to other people, that we can actually bring forth beauty into the world, that we can, we can strengthen the goodness that we, that we each have, and that we can move in a certain direction, you know. So how do we do this? How do we do all this? How do we actually practice with this whole um, amazing and rich, complex area of being human? We've, we've explored it, we've begun to explore it already just by being, having this little experience of this uh, go-round of checking in in a mindful way bringing mindfulness to it. This is mindfulness is the leader. And it says in the texts, um, mindfulness is the, the mental factor or quality that brings along all of the other wholesome qualities with it. It's the leader. It's the first one. When we're not mindful, then good luck. 
you know, if we're not if we're not actually aware and present with what's happening in some capacity, then then what's running the show? Right? We're on automatic. And when we're on automatic, you never really know what's gonna come up. You know, most of the time it's pretty amazing how well we get by on automatic. <laughs> But, you know, every now and then you step on a rake and something goes, Dong, literally or figuratively, and, and you realize, oh, I wasn't being mindful. <laughs> uh, but the Buddha gave us some very specific guidelines, which is one thing we'll be looking at tomorrow morning. We'll be looking at the, basically the, the rules, the, the playing field that the Buddha laid out. And he gave some very specific guidelines for what he meant by right speech, what to avoid and what to cultivate. Uh, and then a lot of what we'll be looking at is how do we actually put those into practice? Because unlike a lot of the other um, areas that the Buddha taught in all the texts, there's a lot of clarity about what to say and what not to say, but there's not so many teachings on how to do that. We're really left to piece it together a lot. There's a, there's a tremendous amount of teaching on how to work with the heart and the mind, which is essential. We need to apply those to our speech. But that connection, making that connection, it's not made explicitly a lot. There are a few places, and we'll look at those, at least the ones that I've found, but above and beyond that, we're really left to use our own wisdom to figure it out. And thankfully, we have a lot of other, uh, we have a lot of experience from being on the planet as a species that we've, we've learned more about how to work with speech. And so that's one of the things we'll be doing is bringing in some of the things that we've learned within the framework of the guidelines the Buddha laid down and say, great, how do we operationalize this? How do we actually make it run, you know, to be mindful in these ways or to apply the teachings about non-attachment or about making right effort to the realm of thought and speech? And the, the process of doing that, the process of engaging with speech in this way, it brings along the rest of the path. We have, to, we have to have investigation. We have to have energy. There needs to be a certain kind of stability in the mind, a certain amount of concentration. We have to practice restraint. And there's joy and celebration in using speech skillfully to cultivate wholesome mind states. Equanimity is needed in dealing with speech and relationships, as we all know. So everything else gets included and comes along. And as with the rest of the path, there are certain, there are certain core supports. There are certain foundational supports. And that's what I'd like to talk about uh, next this evening as we, as we begin uh, this weekend retreat together. And those core supports, uh, I'm sure you're all familiar with, but just in case, I'll run through them again, are the, the refuges and the precepts. And this is, this is, the found, this is a foundation. It's, it forms um, a very stable base for us to do the work of, um, of crafting our hearts and waking up. So the... Uh, the refuges are about connecting with a deep sense of safety and support. They're about aligning our heart in a certain way that we, we, we feel a sense of, we can, we can touch a sense of trust, just like you can trust that that chair or cushion is going to hold you up right now because you your body understands gravity now, right? We all learned that when we were like one or two. <laughs> and you trust it. So in the same way that there are these refuges, there are these um, uh, qualities in human existence that we can place our trust in, that we can lean on, yeah? And so what do we usually lean on? We don't usually lean on the triple gem, on the three refuges. Usually we lean on things that are less stable. We lean on our job. 
we lean on our relationship, which sometimes is great and other times is hard. And sometimes they end. People leave, people pass. It's not, as, it's not the kind of reliable support we're looking for. We lean on our belongings, the things we have, until they break or get lost. We lean on our role, our sense of uh, what we do, who we are. I am a brother, mother, father, sister, administrator, teacher, engineer, gardener, cook. We lean on those things and how, how reliable are those. And we try to lean on pleasure. We try to lean on, you know, having a good time. Nothing wrong with having a good time. It's great. That's, you know, it's gift of being here in these bodies that we can actually feel pleasure. This is actually a very important part of meditation is feeling pleasure, healthy pleasure in the body. But ultimately none of these are reliable. They don't stick around. They're uncertain. They change. So the the reliable supports, the refuges, place we can actually places we can actually count on are three, and those are the Buddha, the Dhamma, and the Sangha. So Buddha, and each of these has um, each of these has a uh, literal and a figurative meaning, or an uh, external and internal meaning. And it's really the internal meaning that's important. So the external meaning of Buddha is. So what, what that statue there uh, is uh, representing on the human realm, which is this particular person who lived 2,600 years ago in the Indian subcontinent. You know, we don't know what he looked like. All different cultures represent him differently. Um, but it's pretty certain that there was somebody who called himself the Tathagata, the one who has arrived at truth. And, and taught for 45 years that had a tremendous impact on the whole world. So big was, was the impact of his realization. We, we each have realizations. We each have insights, you know? He had a realization so profound that it's still affecting us 2,600 years later. And we're in this room because of it. So there's that aspect of Buddha, which is a sense of, of appreciation for what this one human being accomplished. You know, wow, thank you, thank you. It probably was not easy. But it doesn't mean that we're depending on this person. You know, he's not here in body anymore. The real refuge is what he realized. It's not him. It's what he realized. What does Buddha mean? Buddha means awake. It means awake. It's something to do. It's something that we, we, can, we can be, we can be awake. That's the refuge. The refuge is in awareness, is in wakefulness, is in knowing what's happening. So we can take refuge in awareness, in the quality of wakefulness that we each possess in our own heart and mind. This is the first refuge. The second refuge is the Dhamma. And the um, external meaning of this are the teachings. So the body of teachings that were passed along orally and then written down and practiced for 2,600 years and passed from one generation to the next, a lived understanding of this realization. So the body of teachings. But again, it's not a dogmatism. It's not saying, you know, these are the holy scriptures and, you know, we bow to them. Um, There's, there's something very beautiful about that sense of reverence in the traditions that have a sense of holding scriptures holy. There's something powerful about that, and that can be used as a vehicle for awakening. There's nothing wrong with that. I was mocking it a little bit, and I wanted to, I wanted to, um, I wanted to adjust that because not where I want to come from. But, but that's not that's not how the Dhamma is a refuge. The Dhamma is a refuge because the teachings are about truth. One of the one of the translations of Dhamma means nature. 
reality, the way things are. This is taking is a sense of refuge that there is a natural order to life of which we are a part. As far away as we go in our minds, as disconnected as we feel at times, that we are intimately and inextricably a part of life. And that there is and that there is a, a, a truth, a suchness, that everything is manifesting and that we are a part of that. We're not separate from it. And that we can know that because we are a part of the whole cosmos, that the, the, un, the, the truth of, of whatever is happening in being alive is available to us. Nature, the way, the way things are. In, in the Chinese traditions, it becomes the Tao, the way things are. And this is a refuge. And this is radical, because we, we generally don't like to take refuge in the way things are. We would rather take refuge in the way they should be, or the way we want them to be, or the way they should have been. But they're not that way. So what kind of a refuge is that, yeah? And again, this is, this is why the teachings are so, um, so liberating, because we can actually be at peace. This says that, no, you don't need to go somewhere else to be at peace. You can be at peace right now with the way things are, right here, right now, with nature, with reality. And that, that can be a refuge. So the Dhamma is about the way things are, truth, reality, nature. And the last refuge is the Sangha. And uh, Sangha literally means um, community. It means that which is put together. And the external meaning of the Sangha refuge um, is the community of enlightened beings. So those beings who have, to some degree or extent, realized, that the, realized the truth of human existence at some level, that their mind has opened to enlightenment, at least to some degree not necessarily fully. That's called the Arya Sangha, the Sangha of noble beings, of awakened ones. And that this is the external meaning, that those, those beings who have some taste of liberation in their direct experience can be a refuge to us. They're trustworthy. And my understanding and view is that this is not limited to the Buddhist tradition. The, the, you know, Buddhism doesn't have a monopoly on enlightenment. People wake up all over the world in all different traditions and walks of life and languages and cultures and religions. And, and, and they are a refuge. You know, they're a light to the world. They're a light. And we see this in all, in all traditions. You know, those beings who bring something uh, beautiful and profound to the surface through their life and can be an inspiration to us. You know, St. Teresa of Avila, St. Francis Assisi, Gandhi, Martin Luther King. Um, these, these beings who have touched some truth and, and their life speaks it. This is the external meaning of Sangha. Uh, today, it has become uh, used colloquially to mean any group of people who are practicing together. Any group of people who are practicing together. That we can, we can rely on one another because we have a shared intention. We have a shared vision of living an ethical life, of not causing harm, of using, a, using human, human life um, for something more than just getting what we want, but actually for helping one another and for, for waking up, for raising, raising the bar. And the internal meaning of Sangha is the, the sense of goodness, the goodness of those who practice, that there is a stream of goodness that we are connected to. Sangha is not something outside of us. None of this is outside of us. Awakening is here. Reality is here. Sangha is here. It's the, it's, the, it's, the, it's the goodness that connects us 
It's the goodness that we're held within, the qualities of all those who have practiced, the qualities that have touched each of us. Each of us, I, I think this is safe to say, would not be in this room if, if our life were not touched in a, in a deep way by someone else. Yeah. Think about your path. Think about your journey. The, the goodness of somebody has touched each of us, probably many people. Yeah. They might not be here, but the effect of that is, isn't it? That's Sangha, that connection. And it's within us. Those people never leave us because the, the effect is still here. That sense of connection remains. One of my fir my first teacher used to say, um, he would say, on the earthly plane there can be distance, but heart to heart there is no distance. On the plane of the heart there is no distance. And this is why we can feel connected to people who are thousands of miles away or maybe even past. Maybe people who even are not here anymore on the planet. But you can still feel a connection with them. Because the heart is a different realm than, than this. So Sangha Refuge is about that sense of connection with goodness. So we can take these and say, you know, like, I am orienting around these and um, relying on them for support inside. And so uh, in a moment I'll invite us to take these, these refuges um, in the traditional language of Pali, which is the language of the Buddhist texts. This is optional. Um, you can just take them in your heart, if you like, um, or not. That's up to you. You can just reflect on it and just take whatever's useful of the meaning for you. Um, but we'll do it in a call and response. And so I'll say the Pali, and then you can chant it back. Um, and the words, um, I've talked about Buddha, Dhamma, and Sangha, so you know those words already. Uh, the, the two other words for each of them, you don't need to write it down, it's not on a piece of paper, you, so you don't, you don't have to read it. Um, gachami, which means I go, it's just a sense of going, I go, gachami. And then um, uh, saranang, saranang is the word for refuge, it means a shelter. It's like a home, a place where you can stay. A place where you can stay. So these are places we can stay. Our true home, awareness, reality, truth, nature, connection with goodness. And so aligning ourselves with that and saying, I'm committed to staying at home. <laughs> I'm committed to staying connected to these, these refuges, these shelters inside. And then, and then that becomes a support. It becomes a shelter for us in the, in the midst of our lives, all the changes and ups and downs. So traditionally, this is done by putting the hands in a certain mudra, in a position like this. And again, it's optional, but um, if you're not used to this, or you don't do it, it's pretty powerful. You, know, you just feel what it feels like, right? It aligns something in the whole nervous system in the mind to put the hands together like this. And so um, we'll start with the namotasa. Those who know it can join, and that's just an homage. It's just a sign of respect uh, for um, for the one who woke up and gave us these teachings, and then also uh, just for the whole path itself, for this opportunity that we have in human life to wake up. <coughs> You can just join in. Namo tassa bhagavato arahato sama sambuddhasa. Okay, so I see most of you don't know it, so I'll do it call and response so you can join if you like. Namo tassa, namo tassa bhagavato, bhagavato arahato. Arahato Sama Sambudhasa Sama Sambudhasa Namo Tassa Namo Tassa Bhagavato Bhagavato 
Arahato Arahato Sama Sambudhasa Sama Sambudhasa Buddhang Saranang Gachami Buddhang Saranang Gachami Dhammang Saranang Gachami Dhammang Saranangga Chami Sanghang Saranangga Chami Sanghang Saranangga Chami And we do it three times to make sure that we're actually paying attention. So, Dutiyampi, Dutiyampi, Buddhang Saranangga Chami Buddhang Saranangga Chami Dutiyampi Dutiyampi Dhammang Saranangga Chami Dhammang Saranangga Chami Dutiyampi Dutiyampi Sanghang Saranangga Chami Sanghang Saranangga Chami Tatiyampi Tatiyampi Buddhang Saranangga Chami Buddhang Saranangga Chami Tatiyampi Tatiyampi Dhammang Saranangga Chami Dhammang Saranangga Chami Tatiyampi Tatiyampi Sanghang Saranangga Chami Sanghang Saranangga Chami So we have now each taken the three refuges in the affirmation of our commitment and intention to stay connected to wakefulness, truth, and goodness. And so the next core support for our practice and our time together are the five precepts, which are the five uh, mindfulness trainings, trainings in um, paying attention to how we live and how we affect one another. Uh, I'll spend less time on these because we'll be uh, practicing with these a lot over the weekend. Um, but in short, they are to uh, uh, guidelines for manifesting an intention to not cause harm. They're all about not causing harm. Excuse me, not causing harm. And these are trainings. They're not commandments. Um, they're um, step of learning. That's the literal translation. Each of them is a step of, in, of learning on this path. Why? Because they, um, they wake us up to what's happening inside. So the, they are to refrain from taking life, from taking things which don't belong to us, from causing harm with our sexual energy, from causing harm with our words, and from taking intoxicants that make us do those four other things. So when we, when we, when we say, I'm committed to this, I'm not going to do those things, then what happens is when we want to do those things, it's like a little bell goes off and says, hey, you said you weren't going to do that. You said you weren't going to do that. What's going on? That so points us back inside to actually notice what's, what's driving me in that direction. And then the process of practicing with them, we start to free ourselves from the kinds of energies that lead us to do those things, which generally are about self-centeredness. It's generally about greed, wanting, fear, hatred, aversion, irritation, they're generally not coming from good places when we want to cause harm. So it's a training, it's an investigation. So I invite you to take them on in that spirit of, 
let's, let's, let's learn. Let's look at this and let's see what I can learn here about myself, about how I am with others. And so for our time together this weekend, whether or not you take these trainings as a part of your life, uh, the request is that you follow these trainings while you're here. Um, to refrain from killing anything, and that includes mosquitoes and little bugs. You know, take care. They just—they're just trying to get a meal too. They're just trying to live and do their thing. Um, take them outside, catch them, brush them off, and look at what happens. You know, if you're used—if you're used to doing that, train with it. Notice, notice what's going on in the heart when you want to do that, and what does it take to do this? What, what qualities of the heart are you cultivating? Patience. Empathy, yeah, equanimity is very powerful. <clears throat> not stealing, and, and I don't think any of us are going to be stealing here, but the precept is not taking that which is not given, which means that when we close here, you don't go into the kitchen and you know take some food uh, that's not out on the counter. There's food that's been left out on the counter. You want something else that's not out. It's not offered, so you don't take it. It's that sense. It's looking at what, what has been offered and, and what we take. So the shampoo and the showers are offered. You can use those. Um, sexual energy. So in the context of this retreat, that would be celibacy. Um, if you're commuting, I leave that up to you. If you're going home to a husband or wife or partner, um, you, can, you can observe celibacy for the next two days, uh, or you could just practice with the spirit of not causing harm. I'll, I'll let you determine that. But if you're here on, if you're here on site uh, to observe celibacy, but that also means taking care with our sexual energy. You know, how, how we look at one another, or you know, if you're single and you're here, you know, not striking up a conversation with that tone. Right? This is a place of safety, so we can put those energies down and just focus on why we're here. Yeah, and when the retreat ends, if you want to connect with someone, then you know you talk at, at lunch on the last day in that way. <clears throat> Speech, we'll be we'll be looking at that a lot, um, uh, but specifically, there will be periods where we're not talking. So once we leave here tonight until nine a.m., so all the way through breakfast in the work period, invite us to stay in silence. And there's a reason for this. It's to, it's to build the strength of mindfulness and concentration. That this is, you know, when we talk a lot, our energy tends to go out and get scattered. So having periods of silence helps to gather it so that then when we come to our speech practice, the mind is stronger. It's like if you wear reading glasses and you put on your reading glasses, all of a sudden everything's clearer. Or if you don't use reading glasses, you have a magnifying glass, you know? It's, oh, I can really see that now. So having periods of silence helps our mind to become more focused. So really take that to heart. During the periods of silence, really stay silent. And it's a practice of restraint. And then, you know, during your work period, if you need to say, uh, do you know where the soap is? Obviously, that's fine. Okay? But not to chat. Not, not, to, not to talk. And if someone talks to you during a period that's silent, um, just go, just, you know, just bow. You can, you can stay silent and just bow, and that'll be a reminder of, you know, like, I'm respecting myself and you by, by keeping this silence. It's an act of generosity uh, that we give each other the space to be with ourselves. It's not a silencing. It's not about silencing anyone. It's about giving each other the space to just be with ourselves. The other thing we will be practicing with the silence is a fundamental skill, which is the ability to move between speaking and not speaking. So, so many, of, so many times we say something and then it's too late. So notice what it's like to to just keep that silence. And we'll, we'll be moving back and forth the whole weekend between silence and not silence. In general, from 9 a.m. until tea time, we'll be talking mostly, but we'll still be periods of silence. But from tea time at 5 o'clock or 5.30, whenever it is, until the next morning at 9, at 9 a.m. when we come back together, we'll be in silence. And then intoxicants that cloud the mind and cause heedlessness. So drinking, drugs, um, to abstain from those while you're here. Uh, if you have medications that you take, obviously, please continue to take them. That's not what's meant. And um, 
you know, use caffeine in moderation. <clears throat> so I'll just, um, I'll say these in English and, and you can just take them silently. Uh, actually, no, we'll do it out loud. We'll just uh, say them back in English and just connect with it in the heart. So I'll leave a little space after each one to just, uh, you know, set your intention. I undertake the training to refrain from taking the life of any living creature. I undertake the training to refrain from taking that which is not given. I undertake the training to refrain from any kind of intentional sexual activity. I undertake the training to refrain from false and harmful speech patterns. I undertake the training to refrain from taking intoxicants that cloud the mind and cause heedlessness. We have now each taken the five mindfulness trainings which are a support for happiness, for peace and for liberation. Okay, I'm glad that we're each here together. And so let's end our evening uh, by just sitting quietly together for a few minutes and uh, letting the words settle and, and also receiving. So taking in, taking in what you've heard and uh, letting what's meaningful uh, stay. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.